All right, so take your Bibles and let's look at the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, where we have been in this great and really in some ways not only encouraging but, but sobering study of the messengers that were sent to these churches in Asia Minor. And here you have these great, very strong words given to the churches by the Lord himself. You know, it is, of course, when we come together on the Lord's Day that we worship Him. We are a worshiping community. We are uh, a center for discipleship and training, equipping in God's Word. We are a, a place for the use of spiritual gifts and the ministry of the Word of God and service to one another, by which the Lord grows us up into all aspects into Him. We come together as well on the Lord's Day to worship Him in other ways, the singing of His praises, adoring Him in music and song, and even giving of gifts, and as we did this morning around the Lord's table. We even, we even worship the Lord when we celebrate the testimony of those who've come to Christ in the waters of baptism. So many ways we worship the Lord, so many aspects of the body of Christ when we gather if you were with us this morning, you also know that as a church, there are other ways we must worship the Lord, and that is when we uphold the purity of the church. Upholding the purity of the church is absolutely critical. The church's purity is the concern of God, because God himself is pure. And so that means that as a church, we are concerned as a people to be holy and pure and righteous, careful about our lives. Purity is what God calls us to as a people together. Whatever is true, brethren, whatever is honorable and right and pure and lovely, whatever is of good reputation, if there's excellence or in any of these things, something worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things, Philippians 4.8. We don't want to allow sin in the church so that it begins to be leaven, leavening the whole lump, Paul told the Corinthians when he said, get the immoral man out of the church. Even when it comes to leadership, 1 Timothy 5.22 says we're not to lay hands upon anyone too quickly and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. And then he says, you keep yourself free from sin. You are to be complete and perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, Jesus said. Matthew five forty eight. The leaders of God's people are to be those who model striving for holiness. We see that in the epistles, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Leaders of the church are to be above reproach. 1 Timothy 4.12, we're to even have the young men not, not despised for being young, but rather, as a counter to their youthfulness, they're to be beyond their years in character, in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. The men of the church are to be examples to those who believe. Paul would say to the Corinthians, I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, 2 Corinthians 11.2, for I betrothed you to one husband that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Ephesians 5.27, Jesus Christ gave himself for the church that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. We've been reconciled by Christ in his fleshly body through death in order to present, to, to be presented rather before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, Paul told the Colossians in chapter 1 verse 22. Anything less than a pursuit of purity is to diminish what God commanded and what even the Old Testament prophets recognized when they encountered God. Isaiah, most notably, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, I am an unclean man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord of hosts, and so I'm undone. 
I need a cleansing. The church is to be pure. The church's purity is determined from the whole counsel of God. We come to the Word of God, we find out what it says about living for Christ and righteousness, even as we saw this morning, that is the prayer of the Apostle Paul, and so we are to live holy lives. Peter would say it this way, you be holy, for I'm holy, quoting, of course, the Torah. The church is to be pure. We're not perfect, but we are to pursue purity and we're to protect the reputation of Christ in his church with our very lives, with our pursuit of holiness, our example to others, our discipleship of others. When people have been with us, they ought to be more pure, not less pure. They ought to be driven in a direction of purity, not less righteousness or less holiness. We're to stir one another up to good deeds, righteous deeds, holy things. And then the Lord instituted for the church a way to help where we, out of love, call one another to holiness. You know it as the, often referred to as the church discipline process. Church discipline. We sometimes um, see the discipline process ramp up to a public level, such as you saw this morning when we have to tell the church about someone that that is not living right and hasn't repented. But long before that, there's a purity process going on all the time in the church. Jesus outlined it in Matthew 18 when he said, look, if your brother sins, go to him privately. And that's what we do. We go to one another privately, not to investigate whether they've sinned. That also happens. We ought to make sure someone's actually in sin if we're going to confront them. We can't assume things, and so we do a lot of communicating with one another to try to help one another. But if there is an actual weakness, an actual frailty, the one-on-one protection of the purity of the church by protecting one another from moving down a path we shouldn't move, that should be happening all the time in the body. And and that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It protects the purity of God's people. Jesus outlines in Matthew 18 that if... Someone doesn't listen to you. That can sometimes happen, right? You go to a brother or sister and you say, Hey, I, I see something in your life. And you both know it's a known sin. You both know it's a weakness. And out of love, you've said something to them. And you want to help them, but they don't want help. Now, now they've taken that to another level. And so you have to get loved ones in the body of Christ, people who are part of the body, who will go and confirm the facts and admonish and out of love come alongside. And hopefully you can win that individual. Hopefully in the Lord's grace there is a softening and there's a repentance and then it doesn't have to go to other levels. It's also true, however, that if it does go to another level, Jesus outlined public steps saying to the church, hey, if you know this individual, you need to go to them and, and out of love tell them to, to come back, to repent, to turn from this danger, to turn from uh, this chastening thing, to turn from this path they're on, because if they continue on this path, we may as a church have to disfellowship. You say, do churches do that? Yes. Legitimate churches Churches that have gotten into the habit of not doing it, eventually their light is taken away, their influence is taken away. Eventually they're a danger to everyone who walks in the door. The Lord Jesus Christ outlined a way to protect the purity of the church because while we're calling someone to repentance, if they do not repent, which you can't force, if they do not repent, we have to say, you, you can't name the name of Christ and fellowship with us here as if you are in good standing with Christ. Why? Because as the immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5 was to be taken out of the church so that 11 doesn't leaven the whole lump, we're to remove someone who's unrepentant so that we don't begin to compromise at one level, then another level, then a deeper level, then a wider level, and then the whole church turns to compromise. 
And so there is a church discipline process. And what we find in our study of the churches tonight is a church that that stopped doing that. A church that stopped doing that. We find ourselves in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, with the letter to the church in Thyatira. The church in Thyatira. This is a church that got to the place where they were winking at sin. Blatant sin. They were winking at it. They did not deal with it as they were commanded to deal with it. No longer were they protecting the purity of the church. They, of course, were not altogether unlike Pergamum that we saw last time where there was a mixture of truth and error, but Thyatira is a little further down the road. Thyatira has a serious problem because they have not protected the purity of the church, and yet they are a church. They're a place where ostensibly visitors would come from the community, a place where people did profess Christ. In fact, there are some commendable things about this church. But it's dangerous to go there at this point, which is why Jesus writes to them and sends this messenger to them with a serious warning. Follow along as we read verses 18 to 29, and we won't get through the entire text tonight. It's just too much to cover. We have to cover the front end and then next time deal with the back end. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than those at the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold... I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who've not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces." as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thyatira. The geography of Thyatira is that it was on the northwestern end of this whole Asia Minor Circle, really, and it's an interesting place. It was a little city tucked away into, into sort of this little chute that came down from the upper valley to the lower valley. Pergamum was tucked up in that valley and was somewhat of a protected area. And to get to Pergamum, you had to go up through this little veil between these hillsides or these mountainous areas. And, and Thyatira was, was established by one of the Persian rulers, Seleucus, in that little area, that middle section of that little veil that comes down from the north before it reaches that lower valley. The Seleucids, of course, having established it later, lost it in several battles and control of the area, including Pergamum, went back and forth. We saw that a little bit last time. And as the control went back and forth um, in the 200s and 300s before Christ was on the earth, 
as control went back and forth, Thyatira acted or was used often as a garrison, sort of a protective station or outpost to keep Pergamum protected. So Thyatira wasn't that big. It had a, a fairly short history considering. We have no record that the church continued there. And of course, as a garrison, there were times when it really was um, sort of the last stop before you reached Pergamum. So if Pergamum was going to be safe, Thyatira had to be more militarily uh, entrenched than a city where you, you had your regular features of a city. Thyatira was a hold in the road, as it were. And about 190 B.C., Rome, if you remember, had also sort of taken over the, the province, and Pergamum was included in that. And so once Pergamum fell to Rome and came under the Roman Empire, so did Thyatira as a city. Thyatira, of course, was not Pergamum in the sense that it, it uh, centered on emperor worship, but it wasn't too far down the road, and some of the same idolatries are reflected there, as we'll see in a bit. There wasn't a temple. There was a temple to Apollo, there, but it was it was uh, somewhat not well known, so it wasn't a grand structure. There was a temple of the ancient Lydian sun god Terimnos. There was a goddess associated with that Lydian sun god. His name was Boratine. He was a smallish deity. And there was another temple at Thyatira dedicated to Sembethe. That was a shrine and, and was governed by a prophetess. And by some, it was supposed that this was the gal here in Revelation 2.20 who governed the, the worship at the temple dedicated to Sembethe. Thyatira was noted not, however, for its religion. It was noted for clashes that took place in the small city over commerce, actually, reading the history this week, it's a fascinating history. They, they formed what some commentators would say would be a modern-day um, equivalent of unions, labor unions, but really they were much more massive than that. They were powerful, uh, supported financially. They were guilds, and they centered around trade. They centered around what you did as an artisan, and you as an artisan crafted your your features and whatever you're going to sell on the market and you belong to these guilds and these guilds were, were very, very sophisticated organizations. They possessed property in their name. They owned uh, property in and out of the city. They made contracts that held people uh, to them as slave labor. They, they were massively influential because they were driven by big money. And being a garrison and a protection for Pergamum, it enjoyed... Uh, some, the governmental protection of those guilds. It's where those guilds flourished. Small enough town to have several very powerful organizations financially backed and running the commerce, but not too big to dilute the, the power of these guilds, so, the, so to speak, or unions. One of the most powerful in the city was, was copper. The copper industry and copper smiths. There, there was also a massive industry for the dyeing of fabric. And you remember when Lydia uh, from Philippi, originally from Thyatira, uh, she carried on that same business. She was a seller of fabrics and was probably likely part of the dye industry there. These guilds, <clears throat> interestingly enough, were closely associated with the religions that took place there and the guilds, in order to be a part of the union or a part of the club and do business, you had to participate in the pagan feasts, which were held on a fairly regular basis, and especially annually. So these guilds would spend lavish amounts of money getting you into the club and then throwing feasts and celebrations, which involved pagan practices. So the church, Christians in Thyatira, had a difficult time because these pagan festivals were part of their business, part of their companies. Sound familiar to some of you businessmen? You work for a company, and the company has these get-togethers that you have to go to. 
And there are things that go on there, and you don't really, you don't really want to be associated with some of those things. But it's no big deal. You can, you know, sort of make your way around that and be a little bit of a light in a dark place and not participate. Nobody's really at all points forcing you. But what if, what if they knew you were a Christian and in order to participate in the commerce of the company, in order to be a part of the company's union, in order to get a paycheck, in order to take care of of your association with your department or the department heads, in order to function as a contract employee, what if you had to participate in something that was godless? Or you don't get your ticket punched, you don't get to be an employee, you get thrown off the job. This was the problem. This was the difficulty for Christians in the church in Thyatira. History tells us that these organizations were so powerful it's that they, and so interlinked with these pagan practices, that what you ended up having was a trouble with the consciences of the believers who participated in that area in business. Their livelihood was on the line. So making friends with the culture was, for some, a, a necessity, or so they thought. Getting along with these guilds and these organizations and these money-driven business unions, getting along with them was essential if you were going to be able to keep your role, your property, your business. As I said, we have no record of much of Thyatira for very long. Its history was relatively short. And since the first century, the city has been destroyed and and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt as the Muslim world has clashed with, with uh, other empires and even Christian and Muslim battles through the centuries. And so here is a church. Here are some believers in the church. And they're trying to slug it out. <laughs> they know what Jesus said about church discipline. They know what Jesus says about the purity of his church and his people. They know. But a message comes to them from the Lord Jesus. And notice that first of all, the son looks for purity in his church. Verse 18, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. That's familiar terminology to you back in chapter 1. That is familiar terminology because this is the Lord himself speaking to his church as the sovereign son of God. This, by the way, the son of God in, in this text alludes to Psalm chapter 2. Verse 12, do homage to the Son that He not become angry and you perish in the way. Psalm 2, the, as the message is developed later here in Revelation chapter 2, there is this link with this idea that the Son has authority and the Son will judge and the Son sees all and nothing will escape His gaze or His justice. This is why it says His eyes are like a flame of fire. You remember that. You remember that from chapter 1 and then all the way back to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. His eyes are like flaming torches. That, by the way, will be repeated in chapter 19 at his second coming. In the glory of his second coming, he is the king of kings. He's returning in judgment and with justice he judges and makes war. Chapter 19, verse 11 and verse 12, his eyes are the flaming, flaming torches. He can see it all and he comes and nothing escapes his just gaze. That's what you see here is the Son of God himself bringing his powerful justice and his penetrating gaze. The bronze feet, you remember the image from chapter 1, verse 15, closely related also in Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. This signifies the strength of his authority. When he comes, no one will stand. He wants the warning to be strong because he is the Lord of his church, the sovereign son of God. 
It's probably as well a pushback, a very hard pushback, on anyone who would say, we commune with the deities, we have our temples and our gods, you have no authority over us, we rule with our money, we rule with our guilds, we rule with our empire of finance. No, you don't. This is the Son of God. It also is very comforting to know that this is the sovereign Lord of the universe because if a Christian in a church is going to end up losing their job, if they're going to lose their their place in the culture, if they're going to lose even the influence because the culture says we don't want to hear it, if under persecution the Christian loses everything, it's comforting to know that Jesus Christ knows our church and he is in the midst of our church and he sees what's going on and he marks it all out. And as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, there is nothing that is spoken in secret or done in secret that will not be revealed. It'll all be exposed. I love that. And so here is the Lord looking for purity in his church. That's what he's looking for. He wants his church pure. And there is a, there's a body here, a body of Christ here. And, and we come to verse 19 and we see that there's a strength in the vibrancy of their body life. Yes, the Lord of glory is looking for purity in his church. And we would think then if he's got something against this church that there's nothing good going on. And yet the Lord is... He's aware. He knows. I know your deeds, he says. And he talks about the strength of a vibrant body life. There are Christians here, and they are striving to some degree to be faithful. Verse 19, I know your deeds. And he says, your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. This is a great commendation. This reminds me of Thessalonica, your, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. The love and the faith and the hope of the Thessalonians was commended by Paul. I like that. I like that as the Lord searches his church, he knows that there are Christians here And they're striving in things that do make ministry flourish. There is a vibrant body life going on here to some degree. Still. They were first of all commended for their love. You know, I find this really rich because three churches ago, we studied the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus had lost their love. They had lost real humble love. They'd lost the willingness to humble themselves in self-sacrifice for one another. They lost that. Not this church. Jesus says, I know your love. I'm not sure I would have read the letter any further than that. He knows we love. He knows we love him. We love one another. I could live on that for a while. That's wonderful. I know your love. I know you love God. I know you love each other. Unlike Ephesus, you haven't lost that. And he commended them for it. Vibrant body life requires a growing love. And they had a commendable faith, he says. I know your faith. I know your faith. I know this is the normal word for for faith, but it, it could be translated faithfulness, and maybe that's what it means here. I know you're striving to be faithful. He's not saying, I know you're saved. He might be saying, I know you reflect that you're saved and the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, but it, it probably refers to faithfulness. I know that in your deeds, there is a striving to be faithful. In fact, the concept of love and faith in this list of commendations, those are, those are more abstract concepts. And then he mentions here service and perseverance. Those are more sort of the, the, the outworking. So some commentators have thought that it may be that he's saying, I know the love that's in your heart toward me and toward one another. I know the faith and the faithfulness that you have. 
in your heart toward me and toward the ministry. And so that has resulted in a commendable service and a perseverance, or like we saw the word this morning, same word here, endurance, a willingness to remain under. That's wonderful. This is marvelous. This is the answer to Paul's prayer from Colossians 1. I know your love, I know your faith, and I know your service. This is diakonos. This is, this is the, the ministry service. What you do to put your hand to the plow to serve the body. I know that. I know you're serving. I know you're striving to love. I know you're striving to believe and be faithful. I know that you're serving one another in ministry. And I know because of that you've been willing to remain under things. I know that you're persevering. There's endurance. One commentator noted that Thyatira is distinguished among all seven churches as being the only one commended for both love and service. The only one. This church, Dr. Robert Thomas says, deserves credit for its standards in maintaining this emblem of discipleship called love. That's right, they... They have believers in this church, and if you go into this church, you find fervent love. And he does note that these things are on the rise. Notice verse 19, that your deeds of late are greater than at first. That's an interesting comment. Your deeds of late are greater than at first. It's almost as if to say, not only are you increasing in these things, but But maybe you've been motivated by your surroundings and your circumstances to crank this up. Maybe there was a new study that was done at the church of Thyatira. Maybe they started a new Bible study and the deeds of late are are even better than the previous deeds. There's another great commendation. You're growing up. You're maturing. At least in love and faith and service and perseverance. You're maturing. They have a strong core of people in this church and some families who have set the tone for ministry and they are excelling in love, they're excelling in faith, in mutual ministry service, and they're excelling in remaining under whatever's going on in their life. They're remaining under it, waiting on God without complaint. The Son of God looks for purity in His church and He finds those areas of strength and He calls them out. Why? Because they contribute to purity. When we do church discipline, you can see these qualities all over it. When we do church discipline to protect the purity of the church, it is the most loving thing we can do. It's not all we should do, as we will see, but it is... What love does, love does come alongside one another. Thyatira was increasing in their deeds that manifested love. It's just that as the Lord has to reprove them and warn them, there are some in this flock who who are not loving like that. They're not loving enough to be protecting the purity of the church. Ask yourself this question. Am I a weak link in the chain of love that protects the purity of the church? If the Lord said, I know your deeds, Grace Emmanuel, that you have some who love God and his people. They love me and they love the people of God. And you'll find them coming alongside one another and, and lovingly confronting because they want to see the purity of that person's life. And, and when they don't repent, they bring two or three more in gentleness and say, hey, I, I care about your purity. I'm doing the most loving thing because love and righteousness go together. Love and the truth are not separable. They are inseparable. Sometimes we think the Protection of the purity of the church means that we have to kind of become harsh and unloving. That to to say somewhere in the church there's someone that needs to be disfellowshipped 
we, we sometimes immediately equate that with a lack of love. That's why I like what the Lord Jesus does here. There are some in the church that are loving, and he's wanting them to take notice because there are others in the church that are not protecting the purity of the church. They're not as loving as they ought to be. And what about faithfulness? What about trusting God for the purity of his church and what he told us to do as we come alongside one another? What about being faithful in the protection of the purity of the church? There were some here in Thyatira who, whom the Lord commends for their steadiness and faithfulness and even the deeds of late are better than the previous deeds. They're growing, they're striving. There's some here that are keeping the light brighter and the flame lit. But there's also a cancer growing. There's a mutual ministry service to one another, but in some pockets of the church, when you go to serve, they're they're winking at things that are going on that shouldn't be going on. They're winking at it. They're doing service with one another, but with some where they should be noticing that there is sin and a cancer, they're not saying anything. Even in their perseverance. How sad to persevere in, in the service to one another and in your faith and even in your worship to try to persevere in those things and say you're honoring Christ for the long haul, saying you're waiting on him and believing on him and then letting a cancer grow in the church that destroys the purity of the church. Mitigating against all the things you're trying to do to persevere. There is some strength in the vibrant body life of Thyatira. But thirdly, there is also the deadly threat of ignoring sin. The deadly threat of ignoring sin, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my slaves astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Let's stop right there. You can hardly believe the contrast, and it is the strongest contrast in the original language. You can hardly believe it. But strongly contrasting what I've just said is commendable about some of you. I have this against you. Singular you. Maybe the leader of the church, maybe the messenger who took the letter on behalf of the Spirit. I have this against your leadership. I have this against you as a church, but particularly those who lead the church. I have this against those of you who see the cancer and do nothing about it. I have this against you, he says. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. Tolerate. It is the word that is sometimes in the New Testament translated forgiveness, to let go, to release. In forgiveness, you you afi'emi, someone you release your right to judge, you release any any uh, sense in which they owe you something personally as a pound of flesh because they've offended you or incurred some personal debt against you. You release that. You forgive them of that. Here, it's used to mean you are letting someone continue. You're releasing them to continue. You tolerate it. You leave them in peace. You don't confront. You don't disrupt their world so that they'll stop doing what they're doing. You allow it. That's how the word is being used here. You leave them. You see it. You know you should say something about it. But you let them go. See, how does this happen in a church where where their new deeds are better than the old deeds and they're excelling in some pockets of the church in their fervent, vibrant body life? There's love and faith and ministry and there's perseverance. Some of the things we prayed this morning, some of the things the Apostle Paul taught us to pray in Colossians... 
How does this happen? Let me give you the anatomy of sin's toleration. Let me give you the anatomy of sin's toleration. This is how it happens. First of all, Satan brings pressure from our context. We'll say pressure from the surrounding culture, but essentially it is pressure of any kind from our context. And it could come in the form of contempt or all-out accusations or even isolation. We don't want you in our community. We don't like what you're doing. You're bigots. We, don't, we, we think you're all uh, a bunch of hypocrites, and we don't like your standards, and we think that you hate people, and you're haters, and on and on and on it goes. So Satan loves it so. He, in this anatomy of sin's toleration in an otherwise strong and vibrant church which should remain pure and protect its purity, there is this first step where he brings pressure. He, is, he comes against the church from the surrounding culture and our context with contempt, accusation, and isolation. And then weak churches, churches that buy into it, churches that capitulate to it, then Satan uses those churches, those liberal ministries and seminaries and, and people who profess Christ and write books. He brings all of that liberal stuff that names the name of Jesus and he brings it against us. So in this anatomy of sin's toleration, we get pressure from the surrounding culture and then we get conflict and separation between people who both profess the name of Christ. So that the culture loves a whole group of Christians who say uh, that, that they're like, they, they want to please the culture, they want to love the culture, they're the lovers, they're the soft people, they're the ambulance of the culture, whereas our church, we're the police and the hardliners and unloving haters, bigots. And suddenly, we feel not only the pressure from the culture, but pressure from those we used to be in brotherhood with, in sisterhood with. And in that environment, one or more spiritually timid individuals, or one or more selfishly ambitious individuals, they begin to push against biblical standards right inside the church. In the context of pressure and contempt and isolation and persecution, and in the context of of otherwise formerly decent churches capitulating and becoming separate from us and adding to the pressure, then in our own ministry, one or more spiritually timid individuals, along with or or otherwise selfishly ambitious individuals, all of that begins to rise up in the church and push against biblical standards. Why do we have to be like this? I don't want to be criticized. I bring people to my church that never want to come back again. Why why do we have to be like that? Why does the pastor have to preach like that? Why does he have to be so loud? Why does he have to say such hard things? Can't we just, I mean... My friends go to the church down the street. It just is so much nicer. Why do we have to do that? And so you have this fear of man, spiritually timid types. Christians have not been given a spirit of timidity, 2 Timothy 1, but yet we are at times fearing men, and we don't tow off with it, we don't deal with it, and suddenly it starts to rise up. And in a context of persecution and pushback and accusation, the timid people start to rise up. Why? Because at home, they're laying their head on the pillow and they're saying, I don't like it. And the whispering starts in the anatomy of sin's toleration in the church. Or it's a group of selfishly ambitious people. They want a big church. They want a vibrant church. They want a church that's doing for them what what will beef up their reputation. They want to build empires. And usually at the leadership level, if someone rises up with selfish ambition, they're the ones that begin to push back against standards. Why? Because in a context of conflict, you can't preach the word and grow a church quickly. You ever notice that? You ever notice that? When, when a church is planted and two years later it's 2,000 people, one of two things has happened If it's a strong ministry, God has suddenly saved 2,000 people or the entire area is without 
strength, and that guy is an expositor, and those leaders are really bringing food that a whole entire community was starving for. More than likely, it's, it's quite often a dumbed-down message for dumbed-down people, and there are plenty of those things to go around. It's just good old-fashioned consumerism. But the selfishly ambitious can't grow a church like that, and so they begin to push against biblical standards in this anatomy of sin's toleration. And then the leaders, they rise to the top and they begin to lodge formal questions and suspicions about the way we do ministry. I can tell you this, beloved. The elders of this church, you wouldn't know it, but numerous times a year, our men in little quiet corners of the church with two or three of them sit down with someone in the church who has slowly risen up in some circle complaining about the word of God and the standard and or they just come out with blatant false teaching and those elders have to whisk them away, warn them, whisk them away, be Titus 3.10, look, one or two, three warnings and you're, you're rejected as a factious man. You need to move on. This happens all the time. You wouldn't know it, but it happens. That's a battle we, we work with all the time. And Paul, when he was leaving the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, when I go, savage wolves are coming in. I know they're coming in, and they're going to try to draw away disciples after themselves as leaders rise up right from within your own midst. That's right. And so in this anatomy of sin's toleration in an otherwise previously good church and ministry, a leader rises to the top, and he begins to lodge formal questions and suspicions and gather a little following. And then they're already in their heart wanting to tolerate sin, but they're cloaking it in claims of wanting to love others and not lose gospel influence. You ever heard that? Hey, if we keep doing this and saying this, we're going to lose our influence. Or they cloak their toleration in claims of wanting to love others. We're just trying to love others. Pretty soon, if given enough time, the cloak comes off. It's no longer cloaked. And the anatomy of sin's toleration goes to another level. Unsuspecting and power-mongering people get caught up in these leaders' arguments. Vulnerable people hear the arguments whispered in their ears. Pretty soon there's a movement. Pretty soon there's lightning rods. Pretty soon there's a faction growing in the church. What is it a faction about? It's a faction about lowering the standards and sin starts to become tolerated in that group and their hope is to leaven the whole lump and if it goes another step in this anatomy sin is denied under the guise of gray areas and relationship building churches go to compromise because they start calling black and white bible truths gray uh, so they could sort of soften the edges and then they in the name of relationship building say well we have to go get involved in that we have to be a part of that we can't separate from that we can't run from that those people deserve to hear the gospel too hey we need to build relationships with the world if you get to that point sin inside that group is blatant it's becoming blatant and then in order for them to deal with their conscience because they're still a part of a group where maybe the truth is taught they have to redefine biblical standards they just have to redefine it just excuse it that's really not what the bible teaches how do you think that the evangelical church people who name the name of christ and never 20 years ago would have ever you would have never heard them accept the idea that a person can name the name of christ be a genuine growing flourishing christian and a homosexual where have you ever thought evangelicalism would do that how did this happen i'm giving it to you this is it Pretty soon we're redefining sin in that pocket of people in the church. And that group of people, because they interact with the world, the world starts to speak well of them. And if they get enough influence in the church, the world will start to speak well of that church. Oh, you guys are the loving ones. You're not like those bigots over there. 
And they will grant you peaceful interaction. In fact, Satan will pour gasoline and accelerant on peaceful interaction with the culture as the culture speaks well of you. And eventually, if you let that go, the leadership capitulates and full-scale toleration is born. If this church followed that pathology in a short period of time, we would be in full-scale toleration like Thyatira. Who is this woman? <laughs> Who is she? It may very well be that, that women originally struggled with the whole idea of teaching in the church. And you remember Lydia may have been one of the founding church planting supporters of this ministry because Paul came to the banks of the river there in Philippi and the Lord opened Lydia's heart. She was saved. She came in. The church was born in Philippi. It may very well be that because she was from Thyatira, she would have gone back maybe to her hometown, maybe had some influence there. Some have suggested that it may mean that women were allowed to teach. Uh, Wrongly so, I might add. The Apostle Paul was clear about that. But women were already leading. But here, under the name of prophetess, she was allowed to flourish, this woman. She is called Jezebel here in the text. Some have suggested that this is no actual person at all. I suspect they mean that because they, would, they can't imagine a real person, some infant girl's parents saying, we're going to name you Jezebel. But the characteristics here are too specific. Notice she's a self-named prophetess. She named herself a prophetess. And she's teaching error, some of which relates to the Nicolaitan error in Pergamum, sort of this license to sin that involves religious rituals of immorality and idolatry. Same thing here. It's not exactly Nicolaitanism, but it has overtones of it in the licentiousness under the name of religion. She's teaching error And notice, she's leading vulnerable saints into immorality and feasts in honor of false gods. And notice the language Jesus uses. She is teaching and leading my slaves. Man, that is personal. And it is the term for slaves here. Why? Because we are unworthy slaves. Read it, Luke 10, 17. 17.10 17.10 rather. Luke 17.10. When you've done all that I've commanded, consider this of yourself, that you are an unworthy slave who's only done what he's ought to have done. There it is. We're slaves of Christ. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. Don't let anyone ever tell you that that terminology, because of the ugly history in our country of indentured service and slavery, that somehow that language is bad language. It isn't. You want to be owned by Christ. Absolutely bought from the slave market of sin, brought into his house as a son and serving him as one who is indentured, who is owned. He owns me. I love the Lord Jesus Christ, but I serve him because he, he has made me his servant, his slave. He's my, he's my master, the sweetest master of all. And he is angry with Thyatira because he says, look, you're not doing church discipline on a woman who's teaching my slaves. They're mine. I own them, and she's leading them to things I would never want them to be in. Immorality and feasts in honor of false gods. You say, is this a real woman? I think it is. Why is she named Jezebel? Well, she's either called that here by the Lord in order to associate her with the evil wife of King Ahab, Second Kings. You remember that Jezebel was the was the Phoenician wife of Ahab. She sought to carry the northern kingdom of Israel into the false worship of Baal. And the false worship of Baal was associated with immoral activities. You you communed with the gods by committing adultery and getting involved in orgies. It was wicked. She supported idolatry. She was known for it. 1 Kings 18 she was known for adultery, and in 2 Kings 9, 22, she is called, for, called out for such a sin. I think it's an actual woman here, 
Honestly, I wouldn't put it past her to have named herself Jezebel or have enjoyed the fact that other people called her Jezebel because there seems to be no end to what they will say. If you look further in the text, verse 24, Jesus says, I say to you, to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who've not known the deep things of Satan as they call them. That's interesting. It's almost as if as she teaches people to commit acts of immorality while they're, while they're worshiping false gods, they were saying, oh, these are the deep things of Satan. You can get involved in the deep things of Satan and still be honoring God. You know, almost like in Corinth when people were saying, Jesus is accursed, and others were saying, that's the Spirit of God. What are you talking about? The Spirit of God doesn't, doesn't move people to say Jesus is accursed. Maybe the same thing was going on here. These are the deep things of Satan. And they actually make you commune with God. seems to me that, that her wickedness knew no bounds, and so no doubt it could have been that very thing. Maybe she just enjoyed the name Jezebel. Or maybe it was just Jesus Christ using the name for whoever this woman was. Notice her stubbornness. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. That just just absolutely boggles my mind. She's teaching in the church. She shouldn't be. She's teaching false teaching in the church. She shouldn't be. That's Titus 3.10. She should be rejected. She is leading Christ's own slaves, his people, into immorality. And he gave her time to repent. Oh, the Lord is patient. Why was he patient? Because there were some believers there trying to love, trying to be faithful, trying to persevere, trying to serve. Not everybody was involved in the cancer, but everybody as a church was responsible for not dealing with the cancer. They tolerated it. She does not want to repent of her immorality. And so behold... Her judgment, I'm going to throw her on a bed. You you can chase that around all you want. Some of the translations say bed of sickness. We'll get into it a little bit next time as as we unfold the judgments here in the warning. But essentially, Jesus, it's most likely that he is saying here, I'm going to put you, you want to be on a bed with your multiple adulteries and immoralities, and I'll put you on a bed, all right, a bed of tribulational judgments that lead to your destruction. Just like Jezebel of old, he promised that she would be desecrated, there would be no dignity, no burial, she would be eaten by dogs in the streets, and that's exactly what happened. All that was left was her skull, her hands, that's it. Totally desecrated because of her multiple immoralities and leading the people of God into the false worship of Baal. Same thing here. And those who commit adultery with her, I'm going to throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. She is carrying a whole bunch of people with her. Listen, when the church tolerates sin and doesn't care to protect the purity of God's church and his people, the Lord gives the church time to repent. But it is going to fall. And when it does, it... It is no wonder that what we see when we tolerate sin as an evangelical movement is that the whole thing begins to topple at a speed that is staggering. Churches and leaders capitulating all over the place. And then we have, we we just sort of elevate these rocketing stars in evangelicalism, writing books and speaking at conferences while ignoring their sinful lifestyles and arrogance. And when they make the evangelical headlines, everybody just whistles and oops. Do you see any oops in this text on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ? He's patient, but he's the son of God and his eyes are like flames of fire and his justice is immovable like burnished bronze and he knows our deeds and he will not leave us at the point where 
along the anatomy of sin's toleration, we keep going through the list in the pathology to the end. We can't wink at sin. Not every sin is as bad as another, but we need to love one another enough to not just not just be commended for a little bit of love in the pockets of the church, but love for Christ to the point where we protect the purity of the church, even if it means that you have to say to someone, listen, you're a weak link in the chain. And I don't want to be dragged into it. And I don't want other vulnerable sheep dragged into it. I've got to come alongside you and help you. This is some warning of judgment. Well, our time is gone. Next time we'll look at the specifics of the judgment and the rewards of holy endurance. Precious rewards if you do repent. Isn't that great? The Lord gives us opportunities and warnings. I mean, he doesn't just wait and it builds and it builds and he says nothing and then crushes the whole thing. The rewards of holy endurance are rich indeed and he, he wants it. He warns for it. He admonishes. Has anyone come alongside your life and it's been a warning in your life? Respond to it. Respond to the kindness of the Lord which leads us to repentance. And let's avoid becoming a sin-tolerating church like Thyatira. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the time that you gave to us. And every one of us knows that by your Spirit, you've brought conviction tonight on all of our hearts about not wanting to be a weak link anywhere in the chain. And yet we know we, we, know we contribute to weakness because we have weaknesses. How kind of you to say to this church, this ancient church, that you're giving time to repent. Even to those who lead others astray, you, you are gracious and merciful. You are determined. You want us to protect the church and all her purity. But you still reach out with the gospel. May we be like that. But may we also never move along the path of toleration. But just in love, speak the truth and stand. And help people see how they've followed the anatomy of sin's toleration. How they've worked their way through the list. And now they can't see where they began. They can't see where they came from. Lord, may we help one another to never become blind like that. And we thank you in your sovereign name. The Son of God, our Lord of glory, we pray. Amen.